This is the podcast of Redemption Bible Church, where applicational preaching is a distinctive of our church. For more information, log on to redemptionfw.org. Thanks for listening. All right. Start in verse 17 of Acts 21. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God. And they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law. And they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourselves along with them and pay their expenses so so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed... We have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took them in, and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. So when was the last time you took a test? Probably for a lot of you, it's been a while since you've had a school test, no offense, Uh, but um, you probably take tests on a frequent basis and not even realize it. Uh, Production lines have quotas. That's a test. If you have a supervisor at work who does an evaluation with you every so often, that's a test. Um, we here at Redemption, we, uh, our staff has set goals, and we're trying to reach those goals in a certain time, and uh, we sit around and evaluate and talk about how we're doing. That's kind of a test as well. So tests are probably pretty frequent. As uh, Zig Ziglar said, if you aim at nothing, you'll hit it every time. So tests are important to kind of measure where you are and how you're doing. Now, for quite some time, I've been challenging you to live on mission, to take the gospel and the passion for the gospel outside of these four walls and to begin to live on mission in your life. So how are you doing with that? Are you living on mission? Sometimes it's hard to tell. I think I am. I'm trying to live on mission, but am I really on mission? Well, what we're going to do today is give you a test and see how you're doing with living on mission. In fact, the... um, Big idea is going to become a big question today. So here's the big question. Am I, living, am I living my life on mission? Am I living life on mission? If only there was a template we could compare our life to. If only there was someone who actually lived on mission and we can look and see how they did it and compare our lives to it. Well, I believe that's exactly what we have here with the Apostle Paul. Now at this point in our story, Paul has spent decades living on mission. 
See, Paul was converted about A.D. 35, and this story takes place about A.D. 57. That's almost 30 years, more than, no, almost 30, my math is really bad. Uh, What is that? It's almost 30 years later, 20-some-odd years later. It's a long time of a guy trying to live on mission. So how is he doing, and what's going on in his life, and how can we compare to that? So I'm going to ask you three questions about living life on mission, and uh, these are the questions for the test. So answer these questions to see how you're doing. Here's question number one. Question number one is, is God at work in my life? Is God at work in my life? So last week we saw that Paul was determined to go to Jerusalem. Let's see what happens next. Take a look at verse number 17 again in uh, Acts 21, Acts 21, 17. And when we had come to Jerusalem, now this is Luke writing, he's traveling with Paul. And we'd come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. And on the following day, Paul went in with us to James and all the elders were present. So they're in the church in Jerusalem, Redemption Bible Church, Jerusalem. And they're going there and they have uh, Paul is with uh, Luke, and they're going in, and James is there, and all the elders. This is a, you'll hear in a moment, an extremely large church at that time, and so there are probably, you know, 70-some-odd elders that are there, and, and look what happens with Paul. So you have now verse number 19, after greeting them, he, Paul, related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry, and when they heard it, They glorified God. So Paul gave a report, and he gave all the things. When I say all the things, I mean all the things. In fact, Paul was very meticulous. He was very meticulous. You see it in the text. It said we recounted one by one the things that God had done. And the phrasing in the Greek literally means Paul went like, item by item down a long list of all the things. He didn't want to leave one thing out that would give God glory. God was at work. God was doing magnificent things. And Paul just recounts it one by one. This is what God has done. And this is what God has done. And this is what God has done. He was very meticulous in his approach. He was also very measured. And when I say measured, I want you to see how it's worded because the wording is important. Take a look at verse number 19, where he says this, after greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. That wording is important. Who did the things, church? God did it among the Gentiles, but also through the Apostle Paul. And I'm so incredibly amazed at the fact that God uses us. Do you know he doesn't have to? He could make the stones cry out and speak of the gospel. He could drop the gospel message from the sky and open hearts up to believe it. But God, in his sovereignty and in his grace, church, in his grace, has allowed us to be a part of the work of the ministry. We get a hand in some of this. And that's an incredible and amazing thing. Paul never got over the fact that he didn't deserve any of this. In fact, take a look at this. This is Ephesians 3, 7 through 9. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power 
To me, though in the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden in the ages, uh, hidden in God who created all things. Now, are you amazed that God could use you? And I have to ask that question because like, You've heard all growing up how awesome you are, and so we've kind of got this culture today that uh, is more entitled than they are grateful. And it's like we just expect, of course God's going to use me. I'm awesome. <laughs> and of course I'm worthy of all this. And we kind of get this idea that this, you know, the American dream, we're entitled to it. And so entitlement has replaced gratitude, but I want to remind you this morning this is why we embrace the depravity of man and the fact that we're not all that wonderful and all that great because then it does amaze us when God uses us. This is what Paul was. He said, I'm the very least of all the saints. I'm nobody, but God can use me. And this is the balance for us. Being able to embrace the humility, but with an expectation of God still using us to do his work. Yeah, I'm nothing, I'm nothing, but don't let that put you in a corner. Don't let that cast you down because God can do it through you. Be amazed at the fact that God can use you. In fact, I'll say this, God will use you. But in the end, who gets the glory? I can't save anyone. I can't change a single heart through my preaching or my counseling. That's a work of God and God alone. So when he does it, he alone gets the glory. Now, I have to ask this question because I wonder how we feel about this. Do you believe that God is still at work? Because here's what can happen in, in our circles, okay, our reformed um, uh, Calvinistic circles. We can begin to look at the world around us and we can begin to say, man, things are getting worse and worse and worse and worse. And uh, is God really doing anything? And, and here's what I want to remind you about today. Even though we can look to where things are and look to the future and we can have doom and gloom, not just for the world, not just for our country, but even for the church. Like, man, it's really, I mean, like the further we get along, man, the church is going to get weaker. The church is going to get weaker. And I'm not sure that's true. Because here's what I hear in my Bible. Uh, Matthew 16, 11 says this, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock, what does it say? I will build my church. Say those words with me again. I will build my church. This is Jesus Christ giving a promise to build this church. This is what we see in the book of Acts. Man, the gospel is going out, and it's unstoppable as it spreads throughout the world. And I believe the church is active and alive today. I was waiting for the amen, so I'm going to try it again, all right? Because uh, I'm hoping you're with me on this. I believe the church is alive and active today. I believe we're carrying the gospel all over the world, and I believe God's going to win. So I don't look to the future with doom and gloom. I look to the future with excitement and anticipation about what God's going to do. And maybe, perhaps maybe, he'll use me. Even though I'm unworthy. Even though I'm a wretch and the chief of sinners. Maybe he'll use me. And I believe he will because Ephesians 2.10 says this. 
For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God will use you. So here's the question then. Here's the test. Is he? He will use you if you're on mission. He will use you if you're making disciples. He will use you if you're proclaiming the gospel. And so as you look back and you evaluate test times, you look back and evaluate your life, like what are you seeing? What evidences are you seeing that God is at work? So here's some questions. Where in your life have you seen God at work? How has God used you in the life of others? Who have you led to Christ? Who are you discipling right now? What God at work stories have you had a part in? Now, here's what it's like. I mean, when you um, are out there and you're laboring, it's one of those things where you got to put in a lot of effort to see a little result. That's just the reality of it. You have to be willing to do that. Uh, Jesus promised that, right? He said there are four kinds of soil, and only one of the four actually bore fruit. So one-fourth of the labor uh, will return in fruitfulness. So um, there's a whole lot that I know as a pastor that I do, and probably as your disciple maker, as you do, that you don't see a lot of return on. But we're going to keep at it because there is some God is at work. There's something that he's doing. And then my next question to you is, are you willing to share what God has done? Who are you telling? Well, it kind of seems arrogant to go around saying this is how God... No, no, no. It is if you get the glory, but it's not if you give God the glory. In fact, we're told to tell of his works. Here is Psalm 71, verse 15 and 16. My mouth will tell of your righteous acts, of your deeds of salvation all the day, for their numbers pass my knowledge. But I hope you have this mentality about you. I really do. But I hope you look at life and you see and the incredible blessings that God has given you every day. I'm amazed by it. This morning when I woke up, there was a gorgeous sunrise that I get to see and prepares my heart to come and do this. Man, these fall colors this season have been epic, haven't they? And I've had the chance to drive around Indiana doing various things and just look at all these fall colors. That's a blessing of God that I don't deserve. There's so much in my life that God has given me to tell of his works. That's my God who's done that. I got a 3D printer for my birthday, so I can print all kinds of Star Wars stuff for my games. You can laugh, but I give God the glory for it. Psalm 66, verse 16 says this, Come and hear all you who fear God, and I will tell you what God has done for my soul. Psalm 105, 1 and 2, I'll give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Listen, make known his deeds among the people. Sing to him, sing praises to him. Tell if his wondrous works. Let's see God at work. Let's proclaim God at work. But this is the test, is he? If you're not living life on mission, you may not see God at work. Here's the next question we need to ask ourselves. Is God at work in my life? It's a little more difficult one. Here's number two. Is the enemy at work in my life? That's a weird question, Pastor. Where in the world are you getting that? Well, let's take a look at our text and see what happens here. And I want you to look. I didn't read all of verse 20, uh, so I want to go back 
and take a look at this together. So the beginning of verse 20 says this, and when they heard it, they glorify God. And they said to him, you see, brother, how many, now, so here it is now. And then, then they said to him, so they glorify God, but they got a concern now. And they've been kind of waiting for Paul to show back up to Jerusalem. Remember, they can't just text Paul. They can't just send him an email. Uh, and so now that he's back in Jerusalem, they got something to report to him, and they got some concerns they need to, they need to figure out. And so the end of verse 20 says this, and they said to him, you see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. Pause for a second. Okay, so remember Pentecost? That happened where? In Jerusalem. And how many were saved that day? 3,000 men. We have no idea how many women and children uh, believed. Uh, so there are thousands of people at Pentecost. That was 20-some-odd years ago. And the gospel is still spreading, and chances are there are now thousands more. So you got believers who were Jewish, Jewish people converted to Christ at Pentecost. And so this is why it says here, they are all zealous for the law. Now, I have to explain this a little bit because that can be confusing. Zealous for the law? Didn't Christ abolish the law? Did he? No. He fulfilled the law. He satisfied the Father's wrath and completed the law. But does that mean that the law is sin? So are these guys sinning as they're zealous for the law? Well, Paul answers that question in Romans 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? By no means. The law isn't sinful. And so you have some folks, listen now, who's, who've grown up observing the law and they've grown up approaching God in worship through the law. And no, they're not relying on the law for their salvation. They believed in Jesus. But this has been how they've expressed their faith in God. And so now they're still practicing the law and they're zealous about it. I'm going to show you in a minute in Romans 14 where we would see that's not necessarily a wrong thing. So they're not abiding by the salvific elements, but they are abiding by the ceremonial elements of the law. And they heard that Paul is out to abolish the law. That, as, you, as we will read, uh, they are all zealous for the law, 21, and they have been told about you, Paul, that you teach that all Jews who are among the Gentiles, now Jews who are among the Gentiles, not Gentiles, but Jewish people, okay, uh, to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk in according to our customs. What then shall be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. So uh, that's a problem. Now you got all these people, and now they're really, really mad at Paul. Now, was this true about Paul? Did Paul really say forsake Moses? Now, now, what did Paul do with Timothy? He circumcised him. In fact, take a look at this. This is from Acts 18, and we see this. After this, Paul stayed many days longer, and he took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria, and with him Priscilla and Aquila uh, at a century, he had his hair cut. He had cut his hair for he was under a what church? A vow. You see, Paul was still observing elements of the law himself. And he took the Nazarite vow, and he's the very same thing that these four men are doing. 
Paul was, was doing that as a way of earning salvation. No, Christ, read the Romans and you'll see very much. He's not trying to earn his salvation through the law, but it was how he expressed his worship uh, to God. And so that was still happening, but they were saying it wasn't. They were telling other people and it just simply was not true. In fact, you're gonna see this later on. This is Acts 25, uh, verse seven. This is coming later in Acts When he had arrived, the Jews had come down from Jerusalem, stood around them, bringing many and serious charges against him, here it is, that they could not prove. So why in the world do they believe it? Because someone said, hey, 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 Paul's not keeping the law. He's telling people not to to listen to Moses anymore. Then someone tells somebody else, and someone tells somebody else, And someone tells somebody else until thousands believe it. What's that called? Rumors, gossip, sin, slander. Man, does it catch on. James said it would. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and is set on fire by hell. And this is how the enemy works. As God is moving, as the gospel is advancing, as people are living life on mission, the enemy is not happy about it. And this is what he does. 2 Corinthians 2.11 says, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we're not ignorant of his designs. I need some help this morning. Let me get a couple guys. Zach, would you come here, please, if you would, please. Doug, and uh, I'm going to continue to pick on Wayne. Wayne, if you'd come for a second. And uh, Dan, Dan, come on up here for a minute. Now, this, these, are, these are not my real small group guys, but we're just pretending that these are my small group guys. And this is it. This is all four of us, and this is, this is all we have. Uh, but I'm sharing a small group, and I'm like, hey, guys, listen, I, I, I need you to help me on something, man. I'm really, I'm really concerned about Matt Brandenburger. Uh, I have heard that that dude has a massive gambling problem. No, he doesn't. <laughs> that I know about. <laughs> but if you feel convicted, Matt, you're willing to know. He's got a massive, massive gambling problem. I, I heard that several years back, they went into bankruptcy. So listen, this is pretty bad. Would you guys just be praying for Matt? Didn't that sound nice? It sounded so good. I have a concern. I want you to pray for him. Here's a question for you. Are these guys Matt? Is the, are these the people that could help Matt? Are they a part of the problem? Are they a part of the solution? If you're not a part of the problem or the solution, you need to shut your mouth. Am I saying that forcefully enough? Because I can get a little harder if I need to. If you're not a part of the problem or the solution, shut your mouth. Don't guise it in a prayer request. 
Because what can happen is they can go in the end. Man, boy, pastor shared in our small group, honey, that Matt, you know, Matt Brandenburger. Yeah, that guy's got a gambling problem. Like he, he was in bankruptcy. He's still doing it. Then she goes to Bible study. Hey, guys, pray for Matt. You have the idea? And it just goes. You guys can have a seat, you gossips. Uh, This could not be more simple, but we all screw it up. If I got a problem with Matt, where should I go? Is there a verse that says that? If your brother sins against you, go and tell him your fault between you and him alone. And if he hears you, you've gained your brother. So if you have spoken poorly, so here's what, here's what slander is. Slander is when you cast somebody else in a negative light to people who are not a part of the problem or the solution. Okay, when you cast somebody in a negative light and when they're not a part of the problem or the solution, that's slander. And then when that gets repeated, that's gossip. I don't know, man. I think God has some opinions about gossip and slander. I mean, we, we listen to it. We, we soak it in. It's just yummy. And Proverbs says that, Proverbs 18, verse 8, the words of a whisperer are like delicious morsels. They go down into the inner parts of the body. Oh, I like it. Ooh, I love that stuff. And we never say that, but we know in our hearts we do, and yet God calls it wickedness. Look at this. This is 2 Timothy chapter 3, but understand this, in the last days there will come times of difficulty for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, glad we're not in these times yet, arrogant, abusive, got a lot of words about that one, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, here it is, slanderous, Without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure are the lovers in God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying his power. Avoid such people. These are the designs of the enemy. Now look at me. It is easy to fall into. This is why James says, for we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, also able also to bridle his own body. I had to this week confess, because I slipped in this very thing. And probably, if you're going to be honest, you did too. I think what we do is we know how bad it is. I mean, I just got down and just basically yelled at you guys on the floor about gossip and slander, and we know how bad it is. And so we just really never want to admit that we actually do it because then we're really bad. And so we'll call it something else. We'll kind of pass it off or whatever. When I think it's just better to say we are all wretched sinners and we all stumble with our tongue and we're going to do this. And so what we do then is we, when we find ourselves doing it, we stop, just Shut up, tongue. Quit moving. And then we confess, I am so sorry. Please forgive me. And we strive forward to try to do better. 
Now, that was all kind of extra, because uh, it's in the text, and we need to talk about this, because it is happening in our church, and I just want to do all I can to say, let's, let's just kill it, and let's not let it happen. But here's also the reality. If you live on mission, people are going to do this to you. I, th- I think it happens in the church because you know your church things are happening, and somehow we get this fairy tale idea of what it's going to be like, and then we live happily ever after, and everything's awesome, and then no, we're still a bunch of sinners, and we're still going to sin against one another. And chances are you've been sinned against in this way. I have, and you can look at that and say, well, if this is what it's all about. Then I must not be on mission if bad things are happening. No, that's an indication that you probably are. <laughs> and people do slander, and people do gossip. And we got to be very careful. And when that happens to us, it's like, yes, this is why, this is shown in the word of God, this happens to those who live on mission. So let me ask a couple application questions. When was the last time you spoke poorly about someone who wasn't involved in helping that person? How often is this happening in your life? What steps should you take to correct that behavior? Who will you recruit to help you bridle your tongue? This is an important question. If you're married, it's really good to like sit down with your spouse and say, babe, help me with this, because I don't want to do this. And you know I tend to do this, so help me with this. You're just being honest, you're just confessing that, and you're pulling in some help with that. If you're in a small group, maybe come to your guys and say that. It's really helpful to have those who are around you a lot and say, hey, listen, if you catch me doing this, would you just, would you just call me out on it? Because I don't want to do this. And sometimes we do it and not even think about it just as such a habit and so have people in there. And then really, are you seeing the enemy attack you? Are you a target? If not, is your life a life lived on mission? Three questions. And question number one, is God at work in my life? Question number two, is the enemy at work in my life? Question number three is, is wisdom at work in my life? Is wisdom at work in my life? All right, let me unpack for you where I'm getting this question. So we're going to now look at verse 23. I'm just marching through the text this morning, and now we get to verse number 23. So the issue comes up. All these rumors are happening. Paul's life and his ministry is in danger. And so the elders are going to come. They've already been talking about this. They've already been praying about it, and they think they know a solution. Now, we're going to see next week the solution doesn't work. And I want to say, welcome to being an elder. (laughs) When you pray about something and you think about something and you make a plan and you go out with it and it doesn't work the way you wished it would, and then you go back and you do it again. And hopefully you're honest and transparent with your congregation as you do that, because we have no idea what we're doing, all right? What reassurance does that give you? Hopefully a lot, because we're trying to rely on God. But anyway, here's verse number 23. Uh, Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have uh, been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance with the law." 
But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual morality. Then Paul took the men and the the next day he purified himself along with them and went to the temple giving notice when, when the days of the purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. All right, so, so you get this idea. They're going to go in there. Paul's going to pay their expenses. Paul's going to accompany them as they go and make this vow. And they're hoping that Paul's participation in the, the purification rites, because he'd been with a bunch of Gentiles for a long time. He had to purify himself according to the law. So he's going to do all of these things according to the law, and hopefully that will silence the critics. And the question is, is that, is that even right for Paul to do that? And to answer that question, I want to first of all turn to Romans chapter 14. So let's go to Romans chapter 14. So really two key questions. Is it right for Paul to be doing this? Is it right for them to be observing these things? And I want to show you from Romans chapter 14 an answer to that question. I think it's an important one to get our heads around to see is Paul wrong as he's doing these things? Because he's not just letting them do it. He's participating himself. Let's take a look at Romans 14 for a minute. And I want you to jump down to verse number five this time, verse number five of Romans 14. It wasn't so long that we were here, but I think it's a good reminder again. So Romans 14, verse five says this, one person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats eats in honor of the Lord since he gives thanks to God. The one who abstains, abstains in honor to the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, uh, whatever we live, whether we live, whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord of both the dead and the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Why do you despise your brother? For we all stand before the judgment seat of God. I'll just stop there to say uh, Paul gives an allowance here for Christians to observe certain days and to observe certain eating rituals and to do that. And if you believe you're doing it for the Lord and it's not against God's word, then do it. And so no, Paul was not wrong in doing it. But now let me ask the second question. What was he thinking as he did it? Why did he do it? Why did he go along? He could have said, no, I don't need to do that. The law has been completed and Christ is done. I don't have, you can do that, but I don't have to do this. So why did he do it? Well, I want to take you to scripture to show you, and this is going to be helpful, I hope, to you as you live your life. And now I want you to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Paul is going to address an issue starting in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. He's going to conclude the issue in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. So we're going to look at the beginning and we're going to look at the conclusion. So here's 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse number 1. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possesses knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up all things. So the idea here is that, okay, he's answering a question. Is it okay to eat the food offered to idols? I've talked to you through this before, but let me just give you a little reminder. When you'd go to the marketplace at this time and you bought your food, so imagine going into Kroger, you got all this food laying out, all this beef, all this chicken, all this whatever, and you buy it, well, that cow may have been offered to an idol. 
And is it okay to eat something that's been offered to an idol? Well, Paul answers that question in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. So let's turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And look at verse number 23. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Take your pen out, underline, that's, this is it. This is the principle. Verse 24, let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Okay, so what does that mean, Paul? What does that look like in reality? Well, verse 25, eat whatever's sold in the market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. So I don't know if it's offered to an idol or not. I'm just going to eat it. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Now look at verse 27. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you were disposed to go, eat whatever is set in front of you without raising question on the ground of conscience. So the elders, as we saw in our text, told them, don't eat the stuff offered to idols. But now Paul's like, well, what does that look like in real life? So I'm sitting down and I'm going to an unbeliever's house and they're putting meat in front of me and what should I do about that? I'm not supposed to eat the meat offered to idols, but I don't know if it was or not. Okay, we'll just eat it. Just eat the meat. If any unbeliever, verse 27 again, invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is said before you without raising any questions on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered and sacrificed, then don't eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, for his, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of what I give, for what I give thanks? So whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all the glory of God. Now here is the second part of the principle. Give no offense to the Jew or to the Greek or to the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many that they may be church saved. So why did Paul do that? Why did he go and offer these things in the, in the temple? So that more people could be saved. This issue was potentially hindering his ministry and the moving forward of the gospel. If this can help, this is what I'm going to do. To, it's not against God's word, but it might help further the gospel. Okay, there's a whole lot of teaching there, and I recognize that. And thank you for walking along with me on that. But now can I just pause for a second and say this to you? Are you ever asking yourself this question? <laughs> I want to do this thing, but how does doing this thing impact the gospel in my life? How does it impact my witness? Let me ask you more specifically. So we... Had a week. Here we are Sunday, starting a new week. So we're thinking back in our last week, and I'm wondering how many things did you not do because maybe it would hinder the gospel? Or how many things did you do because maybe you pushed forward the gospel? Or, for being honest, did we even think about how these actions impact the ministry and the witness of the gospel at all? And if I'm finding myself really never asking this question or never going through this exercise of saying, does this help the gospel? Does it not help the gospel? Is this going to be winsome to my neighbors? Is it not going to be winsome to my neighbors? And chances are, I'm not living on mission at all. 
It's not a part of my thinking. It's not a part of my questions that I'm asking myself. Because if we're living on mission, these are the kind of ways we got to begin to think. All right. How are you doing with the test? Three questions. Number one, is God at work in my life? What do you see? What evidences of God at work come to your mind? Question number two, is the enemy at work in my life? Am I seeing any opposition to living? Or am I so much not a target that the enemy doesn't even attack? Number three, is wisdom at work in my life? Am I having to make these decisions? Am I thinking about and operating? Do I do this? Do I not do this? So here, here would be an example. Let's say I'm going to lunch with somebody from work, and I know this person is a vegetarian, and I know they feel strongly that they're about this. Do I agree with them? I, I personally, I'm, I'm not a vegetarian, and some are, and they've come to conclusions on that, and that's awesome. But I'm with this guy, and he's an unbeliever, and I know he's a vegetarian. I'm not going to be like, what's the biggest steak you got? And I don't want that, bub, that, that baby bloody and rare. Come on, let's do this. Yeah, but eating meat's okay, right? But I wouldn't do it. Why? For the sake of the gospel. I'll get that veggie plate. So often I order vegetarian at a restaurant. <laughs> I'll take the veggie plate. Dude, you're at McDonald's. We don't have a veggie plate. I don't know if I can do the impossible burgers yet or whatever they are. So, but anyway, point is that like, these are the things that kind of help me walk through and think through. And, but are you thinking that way? And maybe, you know, look, I don't think any of us, I know none of us, I should say that strongly, I know none of us are nailing this 100%. And so what do you do? You're like, okay, I'm not doing this like I should. I'm not doing this like I should. Well, then beat yourself up because that always works. Or do what Paul did. Here's 1 Corinthians chapter 5. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I per persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. There was not I, but the grace of God that is in me. Whether then... It is I or they, so we preach and so you believed. No, no, no. What you do to give more in the gospel is you live in, in grace. Because when grace is soaking into your soul, man, you want everyone to hear. And so if you're like, okay, I'm not doing this enough, then one of the things that's an indication of me is that you might not be living your life in light of the gospel as you should. And maybe you're not living your every day in light of grace as you should. And as you do, and as grace fills your soul, man, you're going to want that message out, and you're going to find yourself living more on the gospel. Let us pray. God, thank you for your love and your grace. Your grace. Thank you for your grace. I want to live my life more in mission this week. What that's going to mean for me is pondering more about how, even though I'm a wretch, you love me anyway, and you've forgiven me. And though I'm the least of all the saints, yet you use me. And I'm amazed at that. And humility, God, I need your help with it. I'm horrible at it. And I need your grace.
And Father, we pray for this and pray that this would ignite our church to be a church on mission. And we'll give you the praise in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you, Redemption. You're loved.